Good morning. Open up, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to be studying this passage in our uh, Bible today, the whole chapter, so it's going to be a longer story, but I'm hopeful that you will be encouraged through it. The title for the sermon this morning, as you'll know, is A Child of Faith. And perhaps if you open up your Bibles to Genesis 24, you'll know that the story we're going to be studying is actually Isaac and Rebecca. So a fun story, I hope an encouraging story for us to walk through today in our text. What I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to cover just a few details up front right now about the text. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the text. I'm going to read through the story, allow you guys to follow along, and let's study what the Word of God says together as we go through this text. But just, just to start off, a few details. First of all, the placement of this story. We're right now just about smack dab in the middle of the book of Genesis. Why is this story right in the middle of the book of Genesis? What's its significance? It's a turning point, it seems like. This story brings out revelation about the seed and the seed of faith, the seed of Abraham. And we're obviously looking forward to that promised child who is still coming and the continuation of God's divine providence and making sure that happens. We're also looking, um, a note to make is the length of the story. This is actually the longest narrative we see in the book of Genesis. So a lot of prominence, a lot of detail placed into this one story, along with the placement of where it is in the book of Genesis, should cause our minds to, to see the emphasis this story has in the entirety of the book. Next, the author, its story is kind of drawn out in a different way of how it's described from the rest of Genesis as we've already been studying. It seems to be more of the account of this servant who is going for Abraham and his detail into the story of what the Lord is doing in his life. So just just an interesting note to keep in mind as we read through this. And then, fourthly, the purpose of this story, which I will not answer now, but I hope to get into further after we've read the story and into the details. But just keep those in mind as we read this. So let's go ahead and turn to Genesis 24. And follow along, please, as I read, starting in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then... You will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. 
And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women would go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please, let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a golden ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten golden shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, "'Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside?' For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. At this point in the narrative, the servant goes on to tell Laban and Bethuel, that he's the servant of Abraham, that Abraham and Sarah, Sarah had a child in their old age, and then he recounts the story. And once he recounts the story, the servant now wants to know what their wish is. Will they let Rebekah come or not? So we come now to verse 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethel answered and said, 
The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. She also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had turned from returned from Beer Lahiroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And this is a reading from the Word of God. I wish I could tell you after this wonderful story that they lived happily ever after, and everything was wonderful from there. But I would be taking away from the sermon next week that they're going to have their own struggles and their own tribulations as well. In this story, the story of Isaac and Rebekah, I want to make it clear that God has something bigger in motion here than simply a love story between these two individuals. God's redemptive plan is coming in the promised seed of the woman. That promised seed of the woman that we had learned about in Genesis 3.15. I'll take you there in just a moment. That the promise is coming through the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham's faith has already begun to spread. Remember in Genesis 3.15, when God spoke, God spoke to Satan when he said these words. He was talking to the devil. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God has guaranteed that someone is going to come through the woman. Someone is going to come who is going to smash the devil and destroy the serpent once and for all. However, the venomous bite of the serpent will strike his heel, and he will perish. He will die. But this is how God will bring a redemptive story back that we might be in the presence of God once again. Adam and Eve can return to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve can return to the Tree of Life because this man, the offspring, is coming. 
But also note that because there is an offspring of the woman, God also talks about the offspring of the devil. Very interesting to note here that that is the case. So what I've done is I'm going to separate this um, story into six portions. This isn't six points to a sermon. That's not how this is laid out. It's just the six sections of this a story, and I'm going to focus on the first two, primarily the majority of the time. The rest is going to run through rather quickly. But first of all, if you'll note, right off the bat, in the first nine verses, it's this oath. This oath that Abraham makes, or, or I'm sorry, that oath uh, that Abraham calls his servant to swear by. And a couple of things to note, right off the bat, you'll see that Abraham is an old man, well advanced in his years. Well, how old is Abraham? If you're Anything like me in studying the Bible or in looking at a text, I want to know setting. I want to know timeline. I kind of want to know where, where, is this, where is this story at in the larger scheme. So I put together a little timeline here of uh, Abraham's life. Okay, so the years you see above the white line are Abraham's age. It's Abraham's age. At age 75, around about there, is when Abraham left Haran when he was called to leave by God to enter into Canaan. Um, they waited around 10 years, no child, and they started to get worried. So Abraham took Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, and they have Ishmael at age 86. It's not there for another 14 years later after that. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and Abraham has Isaac at 100 years old. Um, we're going to fast forward, and now it's at a, 140 years of age is when this story takes place. Abraham's 140 years old, which means Isaac is a 40-year-old man by the time this story is taking place. Two quick things about a timeline like this that just helps me out. Number one, there can be, at times, many years in the gap between the chapters you might not know about. There's at least three years between chapter 24, we're in right now, and chapter 23, which we heard last week. There's possibly another 20 to 25 years between chapter 22 and chapter 23, where Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah. So just bear that in mind. There can be large gaps of time in between those chapters. Oftentimes when I'm reading, I'm not thinking through that. Another thing is to note that these chapters may not be in chronological order. Sometimes, and I know it's how we grow up in our society and our culture, we like everything in chronological order. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's how we understand stories, right? In their time, in the Hebrew language, some 3,000 years ago, it was more thematic. Here's the theme of what they're saying here, and here's the next theme. So they go by themes, okay? Maybe not chronology. So, for example, the next chapter that we will be studying next week, chapter 25, is Abraham's death, and then following, Jacob and Esau are born. But if you look at the timeline, that's not true. Jacob and Esau are born before Abraham's death. So just bear in mind some of those things when you're reading through the scriptures. And I find a timeline like this is helpful. So Abraham was an old man, well advanced in years. He's 140 years old. And some of the questions right off the bat from this, these first nine verses is we gather a few hints. And a few questions I want to walk us through. First of all, Isaac is not living with Abraham. If you caught that at the very end of the story, he's down in Bir Lahairoi, the Negev. It's some three-day, four-day journey from where Abraham is. And the question is, is why isn't Isaac with Abraham? Why is the, the, the promised seed to come through Isaac? Why would he not remain with his father? And 
perhaps you can ask questions such as maybe the land couldn't hold both of them, similar to that of Lot. Remember, Lot and Abraham had that. Maybe it was something like that. Or maybe a sharp dispute arose between Abraham and Isaac, and so they separated. Well, Isaac's 40 years old. Maybe he's his own man, and he, this is what they do. He's going off, and he's starting his own uh, family and his own situation in, in the Negev, apart from Abraham. The text doesn't really answer the question, nor do I think it will it as we continue in the study of Genesis. All we know is that Isaac is not with Abraham, but a good three to four days journey south toward the border with Egypt on the Sinai Peninsula and Palestine, right in that area. A few commentators noted that it could be that this is a thematic play again. This is the land of beginnings. When Abraham first was beginning, he came down to the Negev and there began uh, when the Lord was speaking to him, began his presence in Canaan. You can think of Israel exiting Egypt. They began in the Geb and came up into Israel, so it was the beginning for them. You can think of Jesus when he escaped Herod's plot to kill all the kids, and he began his ministry from the Negev, coming up from out of Egypt. So it could be that there's a thematic play here that Isaac and Rebekah are beginning in the Negev and coming up into the land. The next question is, is why is Abraham so worried? Did you catch that when we read through? There's, there's two main things that's on Abraham's heart when we read through that. First of all, he doesn't want Isaac to take a wife from the Canaanites. That's a big deal to him. And we can ask, well, why? What's the matter with the women of Canaan? Why is that so important? I'll answer that in just a moment. Hopefully, we'll, we'll look at that. But that's a big deal for Abraham. He cannot marry one of the Canaanite women, okay? Worry number two that Abraham has, Isaac can't go back. He can't go back to Haran or to the land that I came from. This is the land God promised, and he cannot go back there. And he, he overstates that two or three times in the text. This must not happen. Kind of a concern for Abraham if we're just bystanders reading this story. Why, Abraham, why are you so worried? Maybe it tells us a little bit, you know, Abraham, at 140 years of age, is seeming to want to have a part still with his 40-year-old son who's no longer living with him, making sure, making sure that the promises of God are not thwarted, that, that nothing holds this up, that the promised seed continues to come because this is everything. But do you remember what God told Abraham? By my name, I swear this will happen. Nothing can stop the plan of God. The promised offspring will come. And to some extent, you can say, what, whoever Isaac marries, the offspring's going to come. But it seems like Abraham still wants to have some kind of power here in making sure that it's not one of the Canaanite women. Or that Isaac doesn't return to the land because if he goes back to Padam Aram, then that's going to thwart the promises of God. And we can't let that happen. So if you're following along with my thought here, it seems like there's a little bit more of some anxieties with Abraham and his age wanting to make sure the promised seed comes. Now, that said, look at what God does through it. Rebecca comes. So through all of that, I think that we as believers ought to be discerning and weighing in all of these things, saying, if God says something is going to happen, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. That doesn't mean be passive about it. It doesn't mean you don't care. No, we await it in faith, knowing God's going to bring about his promises. 
But at the same time, how much effort or control are we trying to put in and manipulate with things to make sure God's promises come true? It's not in our hands. It's in God's hands. And he will make sure these things happen. The question is, is do you have faith that he will do what he said he will do? What is the matter with the women from Canaan? Why is that such a, an important uh, thing that Abraham's worried about here? Well, a couple of things to note here. Canaan, all throughout the Old Testament, is viewed as an extremely immoral and wicked society. And in, in many cases, it's even viewed to that degree further and beyond the other surrounding nations. At times, it really is. It's viewed that Canaan is like, that's the darkest place. Now, when I started studying about Abraham and growing up, I had always thought or imagined that Abraham had come from an extremely pagan culture, Ur of the Chaldeans, which they were pagan, or Haran, and that he came into an area to start the new family of God. This was God's new desire in this new place. But what struck me most in this story is that actually it seems like he comes into a darker, spiritually more dark and immoral place in Canaan to begin the family of God. I've never thought of that before, and I'm just putting that out there as a note, that Abraham, even in wanting his servant to go to Haran, is get out of this place to get a wife for my son, because it's so dark and immoral here. Which We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah, as we studied in weeks past, being the heartbeat for Canaan. We also see that in stories going on from here, Esau and Jacob. Esau took a wife from the women of Canaan, and it was a headache to his parents, while Jacob ended up going to Padam Aran, same place where Rebecca's from, and married Leah and Rachel, and that was better for him. You start to see these recurring themes, and then even as you go on through the Old Testament, the immorality of Canaan to be a stumbling block for God's people continues. And then I also want to make a comment. Who is this servant, this guy that pops up here in verse 2? The oldest of the household in charge of all that he had. Well, I think it's interesting to note here that most of um, the commentaries talk about this servant as if it could be Eliezer. It could be that same guy that we heard about in Genesis 15. Check this out. It says in Genesis 15, when God was making the promise to Abraham, that Abraham said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? This is some 60 years before, okay? Before this story. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now why would commentaries think this is the servant of the household here in Genesis 24? Well, typically, it's, it was in the culture that if you didn't have any children, all that you had would pass on to the lead servant. Basically, the guy that was in charge of all that you had. This is, think of Joseph to Potiphar, okay? Think of Joseph to Pharaoh, that kind of the top of the house right behind the king, okay? That this is Eliezer in Genesis 15. And although it is some 60 years prior, who's to say that it's not still Eliezer here in Genesis 24? So there's speculation about that. I simply bring that up because that's, that was a recurring theme with the commentaries, that it could be, but there's assumption placed there on that, that this is Eliezer. Now, the servant makes the oath to Abraham by placing his hand in his thigh. He's going to do this mission, and, and it's not a small task. This is a pretty 
long trip. Now, you can't see it very clearly, but this is a view of Israel, Palestine region in here. And down here at the bottom, you have Hebron, okay? That's where Abraham resides. That's where he buried Sarah, his wife. That's where Abraham's ultimately going to be buried. This is where he spends the majority of his ministry. And he's asking his servant to go to Haran, where Abram has some kindred. And that's all the way up here up top. That is a good three to four week journey one way for this guy on perilous roads. So not something easy. Hey, just pop over there and see if you can find someone for my son. This is, this is a big undertaking for the servant to say, yes, I'll go. But he wants to. He wants to honor his master. He even says, what happens if the woman doesn't come back with me? Should I make the trip again to take your, your son back there? So he, he's willing to do this for his master. Showing you a little of the revelation of his heart and his devotion on what he has in mind. But he's ultimately going to come back. And like I said, he's not going to go to Hebron. He's going to go a good three or four days south when he comes back with Rebekah to Bir Lahairoi, down there at the bottom in the Gev. So just a reminder again, Isaac's not with Abraham. And Abraham makes this comment to the servant when he is getting ready to depart, when the servant asks if he could take Isaac back, Abraham says, no, the Lord, the God, heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take away from my son from there. I look at that as a word portal. What does that remind you of? He will send his angel before you. Anyone? Jesus, and where, where at? In, in the Old Testament, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? That he's the angel of the Lord's leading and guiding the people through where? The Negev, the desert, around in that same region. So if the Israelites are hearing this story or hearing Moses, they're like, oh, yeah, that's like this area. This is where, this is where Isaac was, was residing, around here. And the angel was leading him. Well, that's kind of like, the smoke pillar by day and the fire by night. They could have probably looked at it at that point while reading the story. Like, yeah, it's right there. That's where it is. Because it was a visible representation of God's presence for the Israelites wandering through the desert day and night. They, all they had to do was look, and there it was. Imagine that consistent, tangible reminder that the Lord was there all the time, leading his people. When that pillar of cloud was up, the people walked. When it settled down, they knew they could set up camp. Sometimes it would be a day, a month, or a year that he would stay. And then when the cloud rose up again, the people would pack up their bags and get ready to follow him, following the Lord, the angel that would lead them. And here in the same way, they could resonate with the servant that the angel was leading him. So interesting to note. And when the servant makes this trip, he travels all the way up there. Again, a good journey. And as he arrives, he's outside the city, and he makes a prayer, a very remarkable prayer. He says, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. It's a very beautiful prayer because the servant's not saying, bless me. It's, it's make me successful. He's saying, bless my master 
It's, it's a humble prayer. You see, what the servant is doing is he's making the priority of God's steadfast love that he promised to Abraham. And if he can do that while granting me success, then Father, please do that, is what he's saying. Ultimately, a key note to take away is that the servant's prayer is functionally set on the promise that God had already made to Abraham. That's important. That's important for you and me to be reminded of that. God had promised the offspring would come. You put two and two together, that means Isaac's going to get married and Isaac's going to have a child. Okay? God promised it. It's going to happen. But the servant's prayer is, bless my master in that way and grant me success today. What he's basically saying is, is, if there's any way I can be used in this way, please use me to help bring about your promises that are going to happen without me, with me or without me anyways. How are we living that way? Just to bring in a small application here, how, how many promises of God do you know that he has promised you? He's with you. He'll never forsake you. That he'll, he'll walk along beside you as a church that he will not he will finish the good work which he has begun in you. He will complete you. All of these promises, and we can say, God's going to do it one way or another. Lord, use me in whatever capacity, and may you be glorified in the end. The servant's prayer, though, has two, is dependent on two things for success for his journey. And you can see them. They're quite clear. He, First of all, finding a woman who was kindred to Abraham or kindred to Isaac. That was, that was number one. If he can find someone who is kindred, that's, that's number one. And remember what Abraham said to him. If she says she doesn't want to go, then you're free of this oath. Wash your hands of it. You're done. Because God's going to do it one way or another. But if she says she doesn't want to come, you're fine. Come on home. Take a rest. But that's not what the servant wants. He doesn't want to end there. Well, the servant really wants this to happen really bad. Lord, please bless my master. And so the next thing is he's praying for her willingness to come back with him. The willingness of whatever kindred uh, daughter he finds to come back with him. And so here we get to the, to the story. I'm going to pull it back here just a second. Here we get to the story where he goes. And he makes this prayer and he asks a very specific prayer. It's not just a whatever prayer. He asks, Lord, let there be a woman who comes out to this well that if I ask her for a drink, she'll give water to my camels also. Now, during their culture and that time frame, it was not unheard of for, um, for someone to come and draw water for you. If you were a traveler and you came to that watering trough, that was the first place you would go to the city because you had tired camels, you had cattle you need water and so you would go there so that wasn't that wasn't odd it just showed hospitality that someone would offer you water or that they would get water draw it for you but to water your camels too the servant's prayer is asking that a woman go beyond hospitality but that she reveal the true kindness of her heart to say i will go out of my way to bless you traveler i will go out of my way to make sure that you are taken care of so the servant's prayer really reveals that he was looking for a woman who would go beyond the hospitality, but showing and revealing the true kindness of her heart. So Rebecca pulls up. She comes immediately before he's done praying, right? That's what the text says, right? He's not even done with his prayer yet. And, 
the, the actual rendering in the Hebrew says, oh, and look, Rebecca. That's what the Hebrew says. Look, Rebecca, there she is. It's like you haven't even finished praying and God brings Rebecca. And we have here a few, a few verses that give us a little bit of a character sketch of who Rebecca is. He doesn't know that at the time, whose daughter she is. And he doesn't know if she's been with a man or not. But the scripture gives us that little hint before it continues on with the story. She comes and he runs to her and asks her if she'd be willing to give him some water. She says, yes, okay. Prayer request number one, yay. Can you imagine him drinking that water, that little silence there, awkward silence? Wait, is she going to say anything else? Is she drinking that water, just wondering? Is she and then she says it. I'll get water for your camels too. Wow. This is amazing that she has this heart that wants to say, I don't know who you are. You look tired. Hey, let, me, let me be hospitable to you. Let me help you. How can I? I'll, I'll water your camels too. Now, we got any math quizzes in here for the young kids? There are. It has it is, it is been known that a camel can drink up to 25 gallons of water in a certain day after a trip. And this guy has 10 of them. Okay? So let's just say they're all super thirsty. How many gallons of water did she have to draw? 250 gallons. That's quite a workout. I mean, if she drew that and dumped it into the watering trough, this, this young lady was tired. I can only imagine. But what's interesting is, is this. After she does this, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. I'm going to be honest with you. When I read this, I'm like, dude, how can you not, like, your prayer was answered to the T. The Lord did exactly what you, you wanted. Every, she's the first one that comes out. I mean, come on, everything happened exactly right. And you're sitting there going, I wonder, I wonder. And, and I can read this servant's story and go, I can't believe this guy can't figure that out. And then I go, oh, no, I'm just the same way, aren't I? Can you relate with that? Ventura, come on. How many times have we wondered? No, really wondered. Is the Lord with me? Is the Lord here? Is he listening to my prayers? Because sometimes I feel like he's not here. Sometimes I feel all these doubts. And we can stop and say, but wait, look at your life. Look at all that the Lord has done to you to prosper you, to bless you time and time again. And we're there sitting with our hands crossed wondering, I wonder if the Lord's going to prosper our journey. Oh, we have so little faith. And I can even be ashamed, ashamed to read this guy and go, I can't believe that. And to stop in my tracks and recognize I'm no different. Some of you in here might, might actually be in a place of despair and hurt. Not negating that. Where you're, you're really wondering, I, I just don't know if the Lord is with me. You don't know, David, what I've been through in the last year. You don't know the trials I've been in. And, and I am really beginning to wonder, is the Lord with me? 
Let me tell you, the heart of the Father is so big to those who seek him. Seek the Lord and you will find him. And the very fact that you're going through trials and tribulations should be all the more an indicator that you know more the sufferings of Christ who died for you. He was a man well acquainted with griefs and sorrows. Isn't that the title he was given, Man of Sorrows? No, I hope that when you really begin to look, study your life, you can begin to say, you know, God, God was there. God was there. God was there. Praise God. I'm here. And I know that the Lord has prospered my journey thus far. And it does not mean that the way home is going to be any easier. That does not mean that. Because the way home might be just as hard, if not harder. But you know that the Lord's with you. And that should give you all the hope and the encouragement you need because he is a savior who loves you and will walk with you and alongside with you and lead you all the way back home. So the servant, while being hesitant to believe, he did believe that God had actually answered his prayer when Rebecca told him who she was. The daughter of who? She's Abraham's great-grandniece. There you go. Her grandfather is Abraham's brother. And this is what the servant says. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. And as for me, as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Why does he worship the Lord? This is thematic this is purposeful in the story. He worships the Lord right here. Why? Prayer request number one. Finding a woman who was kindred has been answered. And it's, the, I still can't get this. Though. It's the first woman. Before he's even done praying, that comes out. I think the Lord has prospered his journey thus far. Now, we don't know about two yet. She might say no. Her family might say no. Go home, servant. We don't trust you. But up to this point, the Lord has prospered his way. The servant recognizes God's blessing to Abraham and knows that God has blessed him as well. See, this is the outcome. This is the outcome of those who have the faith of Abraham in the God of Abraham. Do you have the faith of Abraham in the God of Abraham? Not faith in Abraham, don't do that. The faith of Abraham and the God of Abraham. Because what we read in the worship service was in Galatians. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so then understand this, that those who believe are sons and daughters of Abraham. What? Born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man. You, if you've put your faith in the God of Abraham, you're a child of Abraham and you have been born of God. That's a different seed than the seed through Abraham's offspring. That's a seed of faith. Exactly. Which is why you and I, as Gentiles, 
benefit. We benefit from this glorious thing. You see, even for this servant, the seed of faith was spreading, but it was waiting on the seed of the woman to come. Let me say that again. The seed of faith was spreading, but it was still waiting on the seed of the woman to come. What that means is, Abraham's faith means nothing if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. This man's faith means nothing if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. David and Solomon's faith means nothing if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. Isaiah and Jeremiah's faith means nothing if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. You see, Jesus dying on the cross is the firstborn among many brothers. He must be the sacrifice for all to come to the Father, whether you're Old Testament or New Testament. We are here, we come to the Lord, and we can become children of God because Jesus died on the cross. The seed of faith was already spreading, and we see it spreading through this servant. He has the faith of his master. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Praise God for that. And we are here because of that. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what happens immediately? Rebecca runs back to her family, and she goes in and she tells what we see here. We're introduced to a new character, a character we're going to hear more of, Laban. Laban comes to the play. And she goes and she tells Laban what happened, along with her mother. Um, just a quick note here. Um, we only read of Bethuel appearing in the text once. It's mostly Laban and his mother. And I think that's interesting to note, but I think what's really um, the, happening here, the commentaries made sense to me, is that um, Bethuel is older. As a matter of fact, he's so old, he's probably not making decisions anymore in the house. He's probably present. But at this point, Laban, the oldest son, is taking more of a charge in making decisions along with his mother in the house. Okay? And so... You, you're greeted with this family. The family comes out, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's appropriate, even though I've done this too, to assume that Laban's just out for the money here. It, it can tend to be hard when you know the later stories of Laban to impact how you see Laban here. But he, he, he was actually doing what was just customary. Listen, when someone came to request uh, the daughter or the sister as a bride, there was a large dowry that came with that. That was typical right? And if a traveler would come, it was typical to welcome them in and be hospitable to them. Laban's doing all of these things. And so we just see that Laban is a part of the story. He's making decisions. And what happens is the servant recounts the story verbatim, almost word for word. And as the servant recounts the story, there's something important that happens here. He's recounting the story because he wants to know if he's going to get the blessing from Laban and Bethel. And through his story, he's saying, this is what God has done. God has blessed us here. He answered my prayer. Here comes Rebecca. This is clearly the Lord's work. What are you going to do about it? You're going to say she can't go or she can. What's it going to be? And that's exactly what Laban and Bethel say. They say, um, uh, be behold, they say in verse 50, the thing has come from the Lord. It's basically, we can't argue that. Everything that you said, it's come from the Lord. There's Rebecca before you. Take her and go. And so as the servant does the recounting, he tells them, 
um, uh, basically that this is of the Lord and they allow it to happen. They allow him to take Rebecca. So here, again, thematic, point number two, worship the Abraham servant, heard the words, he bowed himself before the Lord, before, uh, to the earth before the Lord. Worship, number two, is appropriate because number two prayer request was answered. They're willing to allow her to go back home. Wow. This is good news. This is good news for the sermon. So now it comes to the decision. And we're going to hopefully quickly wrap up here. The decision. You have Laban and his mother that want to keep Rebecca for a little longer. And the servant says, no, don't delay me. I got a four-week trip to go back to. Please, let me go back. And they say, well, why don't we ask Rebecca? We'll let Rebecca decide. And we come to the point where they ask Rebecca, Rebecca, do you want to go with these men? This is astonishing. Her response, I will go. I, there's an element here. There's a dowry given. She could stay longer with her parents just to get over this news. She heard that day or the day prior. It's like this news. What do I do? He says he's kindred or of kindred. They're taking me back. The family's wealthy. They can provide for me, take care of me. But what's happening here? Rebecca places her life, her future, all that she has into the hands of a servant who worships the God of Abraham. It's all by his word. There's nothing there to prove. Maybe the gold bracelets or the, the nose ring, but like, how does she know He's telling the good news that it's actually accurate. So she hears the news. She decides to believe it. And then she goes. That's huge. She hears the news. She says, I believe it. And she acts upon it. She goes. Is that much different than you and me? Have you really seen the Lord? Have you embraced him in a tangible way to hug him? Do you have anything to show forth that all the promises of God are real and yet you have decided, I will believe it. I'm here. I will testify. I will believe that the Lord is real, that he is truly the good news that I need and I will act upon it. I'm going to go to him despite what the world tells me, despite the little trinkets and the pleasures that weigh so heavily on our hearts, all the things this world has to offer, and we say, no, I'm going somewhere better. I will not stay. This is what Rebecca does. This is your faith too, isn't it? We've heard the good news of the gospel. It is our response to believe and then to act upon it. I'm going to tell you straight right now, there is no such thing as believing and not going. What good would it have done Rebecca to say, I love this good news, this is great, but I'm not going. That's your place too. That's your mentality as well that you ought to be thinking through that. If I believe, I'm going. It's a four-week journey. It's perilous. It's hard but I know the end result will be far better than anything I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to risk my life. I'm willing to risk my future. 
I'm willing to resist, risk all that I have for the sake of knowing Jesus is better than what this world has to offer. Beloved, that is a hard thing to grasp, but you need to wrestle that through. You need to pray about that more fervently. Lord, please let nothing in this life hold me away from you. I want to get on the camel and I want to go see you. Rebecca's faith is remarkable, as it ought to be. And when she left, they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. We, we just read that. I, it should strike a note, like, wait a minute. This was just mentioned a couple of sermons ago. In Genesis 22, after Abraham had offered his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, it says, the Lord told Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. A couple of quick notes here, because this is really cool. Number one is, why this blessing? In both cases, this blessing follows faith and action of a believer. Think about it. You have Abraham on Mount Moriah. He believes that his son is the promised one. He believes that the promised offspring will come through his son, so his son's either going to die and return to life or something else is going to happen. He believes it, and he acts. He puts his son on the altar, and he lifts the knife. And God says, I will surely bless you. You didn't even withhold your son from me. You're one and only son. And his offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. And here we have Rebecca. Rebecca says, I hear the news, I believe it, and I will act. I will go. And the same blessing is given to her. Beloved, what about you? And what about me? We have faith. Will we act? Act upon our faith, knowing that through you, God also will continue to work that we might possess the gates of our enemies. No, even better, Romans tells us that he is crushing the serpent's head under your foot. What? The stronghold is clearly in the devil's favor. He's behind the gates, right? He is the prince of this, the heir, the ruler on earth, but it has now come that the Lord and his anointed are storming the castle gates and he's shaking in his boots because Christ our Savior already died. It's already done. There's nothing that can stop those walls from crumbling. There's nothing that'll stop the gospel from going forward. And it's gonna happen. Why? Because the promised one came and it came through Rebecca. It came through Isaac. It's going to keep on coming. And the faith of all of those who put their trust in the God of Abraham, that faith will be made sight because Jesus finally comes. And that is the glory that we have. What about you, Ventura? I believe. So I will go. Ventura, it's no, it's no secret. We have 
We have opportunities here that we talk about for youth and for adults. We have uh, Bible training. We have ways if you want to get involved with missions. We have missionaries here in our church that you can talk to. We have people in Ethnos Bible Institute, and we have conversations about other Bible training or missions training. There's ways to be involved within the church and serving. There's ministry opportunities. There's outreach opportunities and discipleship meetings happening. You, you, and many of you are already you can go and be a light for Christ right here. You don't have to go to China. However, if you are called to China, that would be great. But you can do ministry right here. You believe. Will you go? Will we go and share the light of Christ? Because someday we're going to someday we're going to encounter Christ. Someday we're going to see him. I, I'm just thinking of Psalm 23 right now. Where's Jake? Isaac's, Isaac's in the fields. We will lie down in green pastures. He's going to lead us beside still waters. He's going to be your shepherd forever. You will eat at his table and you will be blessed. Jacob's out in the fields and he lifts his eyes up and he sees her. Rebecca's on the camel after a three, three, four week journey and she sees him. And when she saw Isaac, she, she got down off her camel and it says, she said to her servant, who's that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So as was customary for the time, if you were betrothed to someone, you took the veil and covered it. It was actually a larger veil that went around, probably the whole body. And she covered herself. That was the man. And when you and I finally see him, it tells us in 1 John that we will be made like him. For we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure, even as the Lord is pure, we become pure because we've been looking forward to the day that we'll see him. We'll be looking forward to the day that we embrace him finally after that long trip, after the long road home. Yes, we believed, but you still got a journey, and it's going to be filled with perilous trials and tribulation. You're going to finally see him and you will be with him forever in his embrace. That, that is the joy you have. That is the joy and the hope you are looking forward to. Rebecca is united with Isaac. I put that tag along in there just for laughs. Mission accomplished. Can you imagine the servant when he got home to Abraham? I wonder what Abraham's first words were to the servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of the master. Let me pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness towards us. Help us worship you and praise you with all of our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.
thinking about this communion and thinking about how when we pass the elements, it's, it's diminished. There's fewer elements here left now because you took it. But the reality about Jesus Christ is that he gives eternal life. You can keep receiving and receiving and receiving and receiving, and he's never diminished. He becomes more glorious and precious to us. So hear these words of blessing as we conclude our time together this morning. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen.